Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Imagine a toothpaste full of sugar and coffee. If you used it, you'd still be brushing your teeth, but it would be rather counterproductive. You would remove the food debris, and then your teeth would rot from the sugar, stain from the coffee. In other words, that kind of a toothpaste would be inconsistent with the purpose for which the toothpaste was created. That is an inconsistent toothpaste. You could multiply the examples running with metal running shoes. Or an alarm clock that snoozes itself. What's the point? Yes, it's still an alarm clock, but it has no point. Yes, they're still shoes, but so counterproductive, so inconsistent with what they were created to do. The same can be true of us as followers of Jesus Christ. We have a gospel. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an event that transpired on our earth long ago but is relevant for today, is the only hope for human salvation. We have the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. Sadly, we can, while we do that, live inconsistent with the gospel we proclaim. We can testify to others that the love of God, when we believed in Christ, was poured forth into our hearts. And then we can go home and berate our wife and belittle our children and kick the dog. That is inconsistent with what we believe and proclaim. In such a case, we're not proving the gospel's inconsistent. The gospel is very consistent our testimony becomes inconsistent in those cases. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to servants in the ancient world in his letter to the Ephesians said, be trustworthy and diligent, quote, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The doctrine of God, the gospel that we possess, the Holy Scriptures doesn't need our adorning. It is a thing of beauty and a joy forever already before we were born and long after we perish. This is true and beautiful and yet there's a reality to us either adorning in the eyes of others the gospel or discrediting it and making it look more foolish than it already looks to them. Do we have a gospel of love? Where do I see that in your life? Do we have a gospel of peace? Are you striving to preserve unity with other believers? Do we have a gospel of joy? Where is your joy? These are inconsistencies that we all experience in our testimony of the gospel. If we are faithless, God remains faithful and his gospel remains true. We don't have an effect on the gospel in terms of what it actually is. Others will still be saved amazingly by the power of the gospel, even with our bumbling, fumbling witness. And yet, surely that's not the way we want to live our lives. And surely it's not the sort of church we wish to be. One that leads people to Christ despite us. <laughs> we don't want to be that. We don't want to be 
coffee-infused toothpaste. We don't want to be metal running shoes. We want to be made of the very best possible material and be as useful as it is possible for us to be. A lost person who comes here, of course, is already hostile to God and the things of God. But let's not add anything that they can use against the truth of our gospel. If a lost person comes in here and beholds just bickering and infighting, they will leave and say, I can find this out there. I don't have to come in here for this. If they only find among us a sort of saccharine fakeness, where we simply flatter them and each other to get their approval, they don't have to be here to get that. They could stay home and get ready for the Super Bowl. Why waste their time here with us? These are the things that we do to the poor gospel, so to speak, when we live inconsistent with it and with its truths. We want, with all our hearts, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. To put this all more bluntly, I could say it like this. We don't want to be like Peter <laughs> in our text today in Galatians chapter 2. You remember from last week that Peter had come up to Antioch where Paul was ministering among the Gentiles. There was a church planted there. When Peter first arrived, though he himself was Jewish, because he knew that all of us are made right with God, not by being Jewish or not Jewish, not by any of the works that we do, but simply by faith in Christ, Peter lived consistent with that kind of gospel by going into the houses of Gentiles and eating dinner with them, even though it wasn't kosher. Until some Jew, Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came up and Peter was worried he'd offend them. And he stopped going to the Gentiles. He would not eat at their house. Does that make Peter a heretic? No. It makes him inconsistent with his gospel. Let's see that. It was so inconsistent, he led astray even Barnabas and others of the Jews with him. Let's see what Paul says now as we get to Galatians 2, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct, Peter, the Jewish believers, Barnabas, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When Cephas, Peter, stopped going into the houses of Gentiles, this is what he said, not with his mouth. This is what he said with his actions. These Gentiles are not really full members of the people of God. Yes, they've trusted in Jesus Christ, but it's not enough because they are not following the dietary restrictions of the Jewish people. They, in other words, have not become full-blooded Jewish, so to speak, and therefore... They're not really full members. I'm not going to have full fellowship with them. I'm not going to frequent their tables anymore. Peter said that with his actions. If he would have said it with his mouth, he'd have been a heretic. That is the heresy that Paul was confronting in the Judaizers. That's what this entire letter is against. 
that exact notion that if you want to be saved, you have to add some external work to faith in Christ. In this case, you have to be circumcised, keep the dietary restrictions, and maybe a few other of the Old Testament law. If you don't, you can't be saved. The Judaizers said that with their mouths and therefore were heretics. They were not believers. They fell under one of the worst classes of unbelievers, those who lead others astray. And Paul is going to say, I wish they'd emasculate themselves. Peter, thankfully, did not say that heresy, but he himself gets a rebuke in public before them all, a strong rebuke, opposition to his face because his actions are heretical. He is communicating by what he does, or in this case does not do, the very same heresy as the Judaizers. In other words, he is living inconsistent with the true gospel he's proclaiming. And therefore, that's what we're going to consider today. That's why I've isolated this one verse for our consideration because it's such an important subject. What I want to look at first is what it means to walk in our text not in step with the truth of the gospel, which is a danger that any of us can do and often do. What does it mean not to live consistent with the gospel we proclaim? And then after we've done that, I want to move to what it was Peter was communicating by not living consistent with his gospel. Namely, what he was communicating is that there's a class of Christians who are second rate. They're not full Christians, the Gentiles in his case. So let's begin by just looking at this concept more broadly that Paul rebukes in Peter, this living inconsistent or out of step with the gospel. Look at this in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Pause there. If you want to see again more specifically what conduct he considered not in step or inconsistent with the gospel, you can just go back to verse 11 on. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? What did he do? Here. For before certain men came from James, down in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand guy, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says, that is inconsistent with the gospel. Now, the first point to observe, which I've already observed, but I want to observe it more closely, is that Peter was not a heretic. We agreed there? He was not a heretic. He was not a Judaizer. He was not proclaiming heresy. Paul had one mode for dealing with the Judaizers who were heretics, and it was firmness, and it was a consideration of them as unbelievers. It was a warning of others to stay away from them, and it was expunging them out of the church. That's how Paul dealt with ardent, unbelieving heretics. Then you had Paul with another mode, dealing with someone like Peter, who is not a heretic. The right hand of fellowship that we saw that they gave each other when they was in Jerusalem is still there. There is still fellowship between them. 
but he is acting inconsistent with the gospel they share. If he proclaimed the false gospel, heretic. If he lives inconsistent while proclaiming the true gospel, inconsistent believer. And there is a difference, and we need to observe the difference between them. Think about how different all of history would have turned out if Peter had come to Antioch, not just living inconsistent with his gospel, but actually proclaiming what his actions represented. Imagine if Peter really had been a heretic, proclaiming the heresy that the believers in Antioch could not really be Christians unless they were circumcised and added works of the Jewish law, then they could be saved. Would have been a very different history. <laughs> Thankfully, that's not what Peter did. The right hand of fellowship from verse 9 was still clasped between them. Because the fact is, we're not told how Peter responded. He was frequently found putting his foot in his mouth, so I imagine that's what he did here too. We hope that he quickly repented, which is often what he did, so we may assume that happened. Listen to Paul. We're not told what the outcome is, but really the only evidence we have of how Peter and Paul thought of each other after this event is given in 2 Peter, a letter that Peter wrote later, in which he said in chapter 3, speaking of Paul, he called him, quote, our beloved brother Paul, who wrote, quote, according to the wisdom given him. Still fellowship, because he's not a heretic. That being said, we don't want to minimize how serious it is for Peter non-heretic though he is, to be living inconsistent with the gospel. It's not a small thing. That's why the rebuke given here is before them all. I don't know all that the all includes, but it's quite a number of people we may imagine. And because the sin is so public and is sweeping along the Christians in the church in Antioch, even Barnabas, Paul feels it necessary to direct him publicly for everyone's benefit. It's a big deal. Verse 13 calls it hypocrisy. And then our verse calls it this, not in step with the truth of the gospel. When Peter withdrew from eating at the tables of the Gentile Christians in Antioch, he was brushing his teeth with coffee toothpaste. He was still brushing his teeth. He was still proclaiming the gospel. It hadn't changed. But he was doing it in such an inconsistent way that as he did it, he was undermining his own message in the eyes of others. There was an inconsistency there. Peter came in declaring justification by faith alone. That was his gospel. He was one of those who witnessed the living Jesus approach the cross and die. Peter, who denied him three times and then saw the resurrected Jesus and was himself the recipient of grace, forgiven for his transgressions, established as a rock in the church. If anyone knew that salvation's by grace only and not by our works, it should have been Peter. So he comes to Antioch declaring a gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone, nothing added, and then he lives as if you have to be circumcised and keep the dietary restrictions to really be a Christian. See the inconsistency? Say, Peter, what are you? You don't think salvation is by faith alone, Jew and Gentile? Anyone can believe and they say, oh, I do think that. Then why won't you eat with Gentiles? It's because of those who came from Jerusalem. 
fearing the circumcision party. And fear does make us do many inconsistent things. And that was true here with Peter. Now, we have to be merciful with Peter ourselves as well. Because to be fair to him, although this was a serious transgression, aren't we guilty of gospel inconsistencies rather regularly? It is a convicting thought. Let me just give you an example. Do you really believe that if your next door neighbor does not hear and believe the gospel that you have, that that neighbor will spend eternity in conscious torment under the righteous wrath of God with no way to get out. Do you really believe that? Are you living as if you believe that in your conversations with your neighbor? It's convicting for me as much as it is for you. I remember it was Penn of the magic duo Penn and Teller it was Penn, who himself is a committed atheist, and you may have heard that there was one time where he said this as an atheist. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. It means share the gospel and convert people to Christ here. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Never been so convicted by an atheist. <laughs> But we live inconsistent with the gospel when we don't have an urgency in sharing it with others. Or if I could just give one more example. When one of us who follows Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed his kingdom was not of this world, but that he was a king, but who taught his followers to turn the other cheek when they are wrong, to celebrate when they are persecuted for righteousness sake. He who practiced this himself by in silence suffering ignominy at the hands of the Romans and then going and being crucified for his enemies in love when we who claim to follow him cannot tolerate being contradicted on a minor matter on social media even once without hitting that caps lock and getting at them. Those who witness that, they witness an inconsistency. Now, we understand that gospel love is often offensive, and usually that's our justification. It's offensive gospel love. No, it's just you're being offensive. <laughs> it's just you're offensive, not the gospel being offensive. It's you. It's an inconsistency with the gospel. We should be angry at wrongs. There's no problem with that. Jesus was too. The problem is anger beyond bounds because we're wronged. That is something completely foreign to our gospel and in fact, contrary to it. The main problem here is just that it makes things confusing, and you could have other examples as well. It's just a confusing thing to proclaim a gospel so full of love, so full of life, with a sense of urgency, eternal matters in the balance, heaven and hell, to proclaim the riches of heaven now opened up for anyone who wants it, and then to live a humdrum life where we tell no one and we just get angry at political things. Surely there's some inconsistency here. And we're all guilty of it. 
The main problem, as I said, is that it's confusing. It's confusing for anybody who witnesses it. Especially it's confusing for lost people who are already confused because they don't have spiritual eyes to see the heavenly truths that we possess. We just add extra confusion upon that. Here in our text, the Gentiles in Antioch are sitting at home waiting for that knock on their door. Aren't their dinner guests supposed to be here? Peter? And of course, they're excited to see these other Jews who came up from Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem, that's the big church, you know. This is exciting. Up to us, poor Gentiles in Antioch, waiting and waiting, and the knock never comes. What's the result? Confusion. I thought that we were full members of the body of Christ. Peter himself said it. He was the one who first went to Cornelius. He was the one first eating in a Gentile's house. He's the one who went back to Jerusalem. And when the Jews objected, he defended his position. This is Peter. Why is he not coming to our house? The consequence is confusion. I think that's why in our text, what Paul, Paul's rebuke here is posed as a question. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, so you go and you eat in Gentile homes, non-kosher, whenever you want to, that's you, not like a Jew, how, how, I'm confused and shocked, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You don't have to eat kosher if you don't want to, but when these people come up from Jerusalem, if you're going to fellowship with Gentiles, they have to eat kosher, they have to become Jewish. And so it's phrased as a question, how can you do that? That's so confusing. That's undermining the gospel that Paul was fighting so hard to proclaim. I would encourage you to think in your own life what the gospel inconsistencies are. When you proclaim the living gospel to others, what are those things in your life? You probably know some of them. The others, you've got to ask your spouse or a good friend, and they'll tell you. Inconsistencies where people look at it, and maybe they're polite and won't tell you to your face, but they're just thinking... How can you do that? <laughs> How can you be a Christian and you do that? Here, of course, we all have to fall back on the arms of grace. And we do recognize that there is no one who's really ever been gospel consistent all the way through except Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> In every single instance, he never failed to be consistent. He was the one willing to shock everyone, to shock the sentiments of everyone around him by caring for Gentiles and outcasts and the poor and the women and the widows and those whose society had marginalized. Jesus did it consistently. He was consistent with his gospel, and the only hope we have of being accepted by God, of course, is not that we will somehow attain to such a perfection of consistency, but that he already did, and he did it in our stead. That's our rest. But that being said, may none of us use that as an excuse to keep us from diligently searching ourselves, even today, and thinking, how am I keeping other people from really seeing with clarity the gospel I proclaim. You may have spent a long time crafting your gospel presentation. Good, you should. You know the bridge diagram, and you know your testimony, and you know how to share it. That's quite necessary. I encourage you also to give some attention to how your life is portraying the gospel and to align it by the grace of God to the gospel you are proclaiming. That is what Paul had to tell Peter to do, and that's what Scripture tells us to do as well. So there is walking out of step with the gospel. <laughs> now I want to take a little bit of time on the rest of this verse. 
And I want to focus on just what it was that Peter was communicating wrongly by his inconsistency. This is it in summary. Peter was communicating that there are out there second-rate Christians. Look at this again in the verse. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles these second-rate Christians, how can you force them to have to live like Jews? Now listen, every one of you, myself included, already agree with this point, so why make it? Don't you agree that all Christians are equal and the ground at the foot of the cross is level and there are no second-rate Christians? But you know who else agreed with that? Peter. <laughs> our lives don't always reflect that that's our conviction. There are ways that we treat others like second-rate Christians, just like Peter did with the Gentiles. Is there any way you are living that communicates to others the confusing thought that some Christians are less Christian and some Christians are really Christians? Look again at Paul's criticism. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? <laughs> the painful thing here, because the point that he's making is here comes Peter into Antioch. He's fine to live like a Gentile. Jews don't go and eat in Gentile homes because they're not kosher. They don't keep the dietary restrictions. But because of the freedom of the gospel, Peter's convinced, I can eat in a Gentile Christian's home, won't ask questions, goes on in. It's all good. So you, that's what Paul says, you Peter, I saw you. You live like a Gentile. You don't live like a Jew. Now up come these men from James and oh, back to your pre-converted Jewish self. Now you're a real good Jew and you're not going to eat with anybody who's unkosher. Peter, are you wrong now or were you wrong before? <laughs> There's a real inconsistency here. But the painful thing is when you remember the very first time Peter ever did this. The very first time that Peter ever broke the Jewish way and went into the house of Gentiles, which was verboten. It was forbidden. The first time he did it was with Cornelius, and it was because he had seen a vision of a sheep being lowered three times, repeating, these are not unclean animals anymore. You can eat them. I won't do it. I can't do it. Oh, I'm not used to that. Can't do that. Then he had to bring someone to take him over to Cornelius, who himself had a vision. Finally, he goes in the Gentiles' house. And this is what Peter himself said. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. If we could take that Peter and put him into the later Peter, he could be rebuking himself. <laughs> His own words condemn him. The Lord has shown me clearly No Gentile is common or unclean. They can be full members. He says, anyone, anywhere who embraces Christ, full member of the church of God, until the people from James show up. Then, I'm afraid of them. Then I'm going to act like a Jew again. Then I'm going to treat the Gentiles as if they're unclean, so that I don't offend the Jewish Christians who just came here. Peter, listen. 
Either the Gentiles, by the work of Christ, have been taken like a wild olive branch and engrafted into God's people, or they're still laying over there, not engrafted. You can't have it both ways. You're living like they're not engrafted, and you're speaking like they are engrafted. That's an inconsistency. You're acting as if, to use his own words, there are these people who are, as Christians, unclean. I can't eat in their house. They're unclean. He's making a category for, by his actions, second-rate Christians. Christians, but not like full Christians. If they want to be full Christians, get circumcised, basically become Jewish, then you're a legit Christian. But if you're going to be a Gentile, you're like a half-Christian. I hope the application of this already by the Spirit rises up in your mind. But would an outside observer who comes and looks at your life as a Christian get the impression that there are first-rate and second-rate Christians just based on how you behave? Let's say that you are, and based on our demographic right now, this is not unlikely, married with young children. <laughs> Let's say that's your position, your mom, you got your kids, and you come into a local church and you begin to plug in. Good, do that. And then you're on the hunt, looking around, and you go, oh, good, there's a lot of marrieds with young kids around here. So you go and you find one, and oh my goodness, they like the same kind of activities that you like, which is wonderful, nothing wrong with that. You strike up a conversation, that's wonderful. This is somebody, even if you weren't Christians, you'd be friends with this person, your personalities mesh, you click, that's the word, you click with that person. And so you befriend that person, and you join that person's small group, and you go to that person's house, and you spend a lot of time with that person. And just with that person. And then other people who are like both of you are also there because you also click. And now you've got friends and you feel well connected in the church. Well, what about people with gray hair? <laughs> oh, well, uh, I hope you have a senior ministry. To, I'm sure there's a small group somewhere they can join other people with gray hair. What, what about the Christians who are high schoolers? Well, you, we've got a youth group. <laughs> yes, we do. And it's very good. But also, by God's design, you are the youth group. God never designed for you to just go with the people you vibe with and you click with. And then everybody else, yes, they're Christians, but they're not Christian enough for you to want to associate with them. Because that's hard and uncomfortable. And so your behavior is communicating to the world, oh, I get, oh Christianity, I get it. It's like a social club. You go there, you find people like you who like the things you like, you associate with them. It's just easier to find because you're moral and all of that stuff. You don't have to go to a church to do that. If the world gets us, we're doing it wrong because then you don't need a gospel. The gospel intervenes and changes things. The gospel comes in and says, that high school girl who's not in your season, doesn't have kids, doesn't know what that means. There she is. She's got different interests. She's a different, I don't know, everybody's categorized Gen Z or whatever. I don't know what she is. She's different, okay? And she thinks differently. You don't get her jokes. You don't even understand some of her words. And so you're going to keep your distance. You know who that is? That's not a teenager. That's, no, 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 no. That's your sister. That's your sister because of Christ. Jesus died upon the cross so that that wouldn't just be a teenager but so that that would be your sister who will be with you forever, who desperately needs your involvement in her life. That Aquila and Priscilla, that older couple, 
they're a different generation too from you, and so they do things different. They have different approaches to things. They use different language than you do. You don't want to offend them, so you stay away. No, 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 no. That's not an older couple. That's not an older couple. You thought that was? No. That's your brother and sister in Christ. Jesus died so that you wouldn't think of them as second rate. So you wouldn't think of those younger as second rate. Those in a different demographic, those in a different season of life, none of these are second rate to any of us. If we live as if groups in the church that we don't click with are kind of second rate Christians to us, they're our brothers and sisters, technically, but we don't live as if they are, that's just confusing. That's super confusing to every lost person who comes in here. When we have, like we did just the other day, went out with some of my friends to spend time with one of the lost friends they had, and we're spending time together, and Darren Wheeler was there. Among us young people, spending time with us, and I thought as I sat there, he doesn't have to be here. <laughs> and uh, as we all talked about what young people talk about, he sat there and shook his head like this. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. That's Darren living consistent with the gospel. Because you could look around at all the other tables in that restaurant. Nobody's doing that. You don't have the mixing of generations like that. It's because of the gospel that we have, that we're not thinking in categories. That makes things confusing. If you come to church and you make your primary objective clicking, and I get it, we like to click with people. I do too. You do? Good. If you make that your objective, you come to a church, you look around, are there people like you? Do you click together? All right. I'm staying. You get into small group. Do we click together? Do we vibe? Are we in the same season? Do we think the same? All right. I'm committed. You could do that as a lost person. You don't need the gospel to do that. Every lost person does that exact same thing. What more are you doing than the Gentiles are doing? When you come into a church and you go, do they have the gospel? Is there vibrant spiritual life here? Everybody looks different than me. Who cares? We don't have to click. It's not the goal. It's not the goal. The goal is to set forth before the world that we have a gospel so powerful that we love each other to the death even if we don't click. And you're not going to click with everybody. It's kind of a bonus if you click with somebody. But it's really confusing if we make that necessary to our fellowship. Think, for example, of this inconsistency. And look, I don't know exactly where this comes from in all detail, and I don't know how to fix it in all detail, okay? But let's just admit the fact that it's confusing that in our country, you typically have white churches and black churches. It's a sad thing. And in an ideal world, it wouldn't be that way. I don't know all why that is. I'm guessing some of that is because we have preferences. We have certain cultural preferences, and we don't want the inconvenience of having to get uncomfortable with those. So all of us have kind of done that for the most part. But the problem in my own heart as I think about that is what about missions? What about missions? How are you going to go overseas? Someone like Peter from Jerusalem, Jewish in all your cultural baggage, go all the way to Antioch where the Gentiles are, get there to China, to India, to somewhere where I guarantee the difference between you and someone older or younger is a lot less than the difference between you and some of these tribes people who are unreached with the gospel. How are you going to go there and plant a church and love them to the death if you don't vibe, 
They don't like the things you like. They don't even know about the things you like. We have to begin getting very comfortable being uncomfortable in our relationships. It was, in some sense, part of the essential problem between Jews and Gentiles in the early church is Jews were comfortable with Jews, and Gentiles were comfortable with Gentiles, but Jews were not comfortable with Gentiles. <laughs> and you know you've got groups of people in the world, older, younger, different season of life, certain personalities, whatever, and you're not comfortable with them. Well, tough luck. If you're an unbeliever, you wouldn't have to hang out with them. You're the one who trusts in Christ, right? Okay, so you're a believer. That's your brother. That's your sister. That's what the gospel says, that there was a dividing wall in Ephesians. And Christ, by his death, tore down the dividing wall. That's not just the wall between us and God. That's the wall between us and us. So that every believer, every believer, no exceptions, there's no second rate. We're all primary, first-rate Christians here. Every believer is a believer. And you have a full responsibility to one another, to love them, to serve them. That is what Peter and Barnabas chose not to do. The only thing you need in a relationship for it to work is the opportunity to serve that person. You don't need to click. You don't need to resonate. You need opportunity to serve that person, and that's it. If Peter and Barnabas would have embraced that fact and not been so afraid of those who came from Jerusalem, we wouldn't be reading this passage now. So may God grant that we not be like Peter and Barnabas, but heed the rebuke of Paul. There are no second-rate Christians, no Jew and Gentile, as Paul will say later, in Christ, circumcision, uncircumcision means nothing. Even male and female, it's, we'll talk about that. It's not gender fluidity at all. But in Christ, we're all one. Do we live consistent with that fact? Now, as we come to the end of this message, I don't want to end on that note, as important as it is. And I guess our passage ends on a rebuke <laughs> for all of us. But I do want to end on this note. If what we're saying here is true, our inconsistency with the gospel, it doesn't change the gospel itself. And just like we have to make the effort so that we never make others feel like second-rate Christians, the fact is some of you feel like second-rate Christians right now. You feel like those Gentiles up in Antioch, like, you know, you're Christian, but you're not like Christian Christian. You're not a Dan Gilock, you know. You're not one of these spiritual giants. You're just the one who you show up and you go. You're not a pastor. You're not in some evangelistic ministry. You're a Christian just living your life. And you think of yourself as a second-rate Christian. You also are being inconsistent with the gospel. I don't care what Peter does or how anyone treats you. Those Gentiles in Antioch waiting for Peter to knock on the door in vain, they were full-fledged Christians. They're in paradise today alongside the Jewish brothers who came from James because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us not add any confusion to that. Jesus died. Jesus resurrected. Jesus is in heaven today for Jews and Gentiles. He's in heaven today for men and women. He's in heaven today for those who are high on the socioeconomic ladder and those at the very bottom. He's on, in heaven today reigning on behalf of those who are young and old, with kids, without kids, singles, high schoolers, middle schoolers. Jesus Christ's gospel 
means that there's no one in Christ that you should consider unclean, and that includes yourself. You are not a second-rate Christian. You've got to get that out of your head. When ministry opportunities come up, they say, I can't do that. I, you know, I'm just the one who slips in and I slip out. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are not a second-rate Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian. You are as much redeemed in Jesus Christ and made part of the people of God as the apostles Peter and Paul. You are as much a first-rate Christian as any pastor or evangelist that you have ever met. You can only be either Christian or not Christian. There's no degrees here and no second rate. That is the truth of the gospel. And may God by His grace grant that we never compromise it by our living. <laughs>